Hello and welcome to part one of the very first episode of the Elephant in the Room podcast. This is an uncensored and unfiltered conservative source on campus. I'm your host, Ian Cruz, and today we've got some special guests coming your way. One thing that I know I was afraid of before coming to Georgetown was campus life as a conservative student. In this episode, you're going to get an insight into how each class has navigated such a liberal campus and stayed true to their values. So first up, we have a member of the freshman class of 2025. Please join him, join me in welcoming George to the show. As a freshman myself, I will probably attest to a lot of what you're saying, but everyone brings their own unique perspectives, so I'm sure our listeners are eager to hear your story. Firstly, I wanted to ask you, how much did the liberal conservative political divide factor into your decision to attend Georgetown? First, uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm honored to be the uh, very first member. Um, in terms of how it factored in my college decision, I would say barely at all. And the honest fact is, is that most campuses have similar issues. Now, did this prohibit me from applying to some campuses? Yes, I didn't apply to any schools in California. Uh, I know the reputation of some of those schools. But at the end of the day, I couldn't go on my normal college search factoring that in for every campus because the simple truth is, is that it's very similar at every campus. Given that you live in Florida, did it ever cross your mind that given the strong conservative governor there, Ron DeSantis, that you would stay in Florida to keep a more conservative state or come all the way to D.C., which is 90 percent Biden voters? I mean, I, I did take that into some consideration, but I don't think I ever wanted to stay in Florida for college. Not that I don't want to work there someday or live there someday, but I did want to get an experience outside of Florida since I had lived there almost exclusively my entire life. I had actually spent one year here in D.C. when my dad had his government job, but that was about the extent I had outside of Florida. So I did want to get that experience somewhere else. And was there anything special about your time in D.C. that made you really want to come back here? Or was it more about Georgetown and the opportunities that were provided for students? I would say it's a combination of both. When I was in D.C., I was only um, in first grade, and I did kind of see it through this big halo, uh, this big you know, place where all the work got done and everything, seeing these big buildings with beautiful white columns and looking all majestic and all that and I I guess that kind of almost inspired me in some way but at the end of the day you know looking back I had been to Georgetown for uh, a summer program for debate so I had had experience with the campus and I knew that the reputation Georgetown had for things around government around international relations things that I'm interested in so those were the primary reasons I would say and in classes in general how do you feel professors tend to lead the classes? Do you find them to be too woke and too liberal? Or do they appear to be more open to conservative or opposing viewpoints? So as a freshman, I might not have as good uh, or as well-rounded a perspective on this as other students who have just been through more classes. Uh, my one, uh, my biggest political science class so far uh, was the uh, comparative political systems class I took. And the professor there um, definitely like leaned liberal but I didn't find it the most distracting thing in the world. It was a large class. It would have been hard to like really force it down our throats. I honestly don't think the class had time for that. So I think it was managed fairly well for someone who might have had like liberal preferences, but you know didn't try and push it well together. You know either way, uh, there have been some other classes I've taken. I'm taking a course that has to do with um, you know the ecosystem and climate change and things like that, and that definitely has much more of a liberal spin on it. 
Uh, the this course is actually kind of divided into two sections. It's done to the core pathways group here at Georgetown. The first section I had, I had a chemistry teacher. He was actually really cool, and I mean, his really his only preferences were put towards what you know science stated and things like that. So I felt that was a lot better, a lot less uh, filtered as it might otherwise be. Um, we talked about nuclear energy and all these other possible, more feasible, practical solutions. Whereas this um, second um, half of the semester, I've been in a class that's more focused towards biodiversity. And like, you know, day two of our one of our lectures, we got, you know, essentially told that traditional economics can't, effect, can't factor in for all, you know, the things that happen to the climate. And that the climate is, quote, subsidizing the entire world. And did any of your colleagues or classmates intimidate you in any way or did they pressure you in any way to conform to any specific viewpoint or how did they interact with the class that you've been in so far and have they presented a more open and welcoming environment to the classroom as well? So in terms of my classes, I would say the one class where this might have been a little bit of issue was my class on biblical literature. You would kind of expect, especially this being a religious institution, that the people in that class would be a little bit, you know, more religious. And I, I found that was really the opposite of the case. And I, I have no problem with having, you know, discussions with people who aren't religious. In fact, those are some of the most productive discussions you can have. But I would say a lot of the discussions in that class did go into this fact, like go into the conversation of how the Bible is extremely flawed and, you know, sexist, these kinds of things. And I did, I did my best to, you know, like kind of speak up and defend, I'd say, a lot of passages and viewpoints. Although I think that's something people should also take into account is that the Bible is not a kid's story. It is really a rated R, um, you know, depiction, not a depiction, a rated R reality of a lot of things that do happen. So I think people do get shocked by that. And in turn, they have these very adverse reactions. So I, I did have to navigate that a little bit. It wasn't the worst pressure in the world, but I definitely felt like I was outnumbered in terms of people who are, you know, religious to some extent. There were one or other two people in the class that also kind of shared my values, but I'd say the large majority were very critical of biblical texts. I think a mistake a lot of people make when reading the Bible is assuming that they are virtuous people who are to be looked up to. I'd say a lot of stories, if not the majority of them, are quite the opposite. They're showing what you shouldn't do. Um, even in the case of Job, who's supposed to be God's perfect servant, um, it's this very complicated tale of like what happens even if, you know, everything you do seems to be righteous and you don't get what you think you would deserve, um, what life throws at you. So you have to, I'd say, read the Bible in the context of humans are innately flawed and that these people, while sometimes they show admirable traits, are often showing you what not to do. Yes, precisely. But to move away from uh, classes, what advice do you have for the class of 2026 who are coming in, who are going to navigate a lot of that introductory phase, a lot of pronoun discussion thrown around, especially for our grade? Um, and how would you advise conservative students to walk that tightrope of not wanting to leave a bad impression for people, but at the same time sticking true to what you believe in? Yeah, I, I assume if, if you you know, had the patience to, you went through a lot of the same orientation classes I did, where the diversity department on campus openly endorsed the Biden administration. Um, and they're kind of this, they praised it as like this new coming after the Trump administration went away. 
And not that I necessarily have a problem with people have polit having political leanings, because of course they do, but for the administration to openly endorse one person, I did find problematic. We, um, I had a, uh, the person who was leading that uh, a lot of discussions that we had in my orientation was quite left-leaning. Um, when we were supposed to have a discussion about free speech, he said we should skip over it because this is only a discussion that you know gives people permission to say hateful things to have hate speech. So you're going to get those moments um, during your pre-orientation, likely. Um, at least I did. And I think to some degree, you know, you do have to push back. You need to show that some things are just not okay to skip over, but then you also have to realize what the setting is. And there are, I think, more than you would expect, people who do think like you, who might just not, being as, not be as willing to express those values. And, you know, if you don't want to, like, speak up in class and, you know, create that dissonance, that uncomfortable conversation, I think it's more than acceptable to just, like, talk with people afterwards and find out what they really believe. Yeah, it's great advice, and I definitely was shocked when the speakers, I think it was about a racial justice panel, said, like, oh, the Biden administration is so great, and to think of what Joe Biden even said when he was in the Senate, and to have him as the this new upcoming of racial justice, I found very puzzling. Yeah, he, I mean, he was the primary leader against the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, who was the first African-American justice appointed to the Supreme Court. So I find that quite ironic. Exactly. And he used a lot of um, derogatory language towards African-Americans, calling them predators and urban jungles, I believe was another quote that he, he had about uh, the integration in the 1984 crime bill. So that's just, it was very confusing and it put me in a position where you're coming to a Jesuit school, a Catholic school, you think that there will be a, at least core, more con socially conservative values that will be shared by the administration because that tends to be associated with religion. However, that was not the case, and to have that openly stated was very shocking, personally, and it, it made me a little bit more determined to want to get involved in conservative circles and Georgetown Republicans. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which... Um, what were your first impressions of GUCR and becoming part of conservative circles on campus? Were you set on joining GUCR when you got here to have that area to speak your mind freely? Or was it more of keeping it to yourself and seeing how things were before dipping your toe in the water before getting serious? I knew I always wanted to do political stuff, but I wasn't set on joining GUCR. Um, one of the main reasons was is that at my high school, they had had a young Republicans group for a little while and then it had declined so much in membership that didn't even exist by the time like I was a junior so I didn't even you know I couldn't join that and also there was this idea that we talked about with a lot of other conservative students about maybe not wanting to put that on your resume when applying to certain universities so I, I didn't know if I was going to join something I didn't know if the GUCR here would have been even a major force or would have just been a hodgepodge of a couple kids um, but I, I was I'd say pleasantly surprised to find that we have a pretty nice group of people and that, you know, we have a pretty strong membership. So once I saw that, I, I felt pretty comfortable joining the organization and sure, you're not in the mind, you're not in the majority, but you know, you have to get used to that. And if you're not willing to, you know, break the mold a little bit, you know, where's the fun? And one final question I had is you were one of our three debaters in the freshman debate mm -hmm. not too long ago. How did you feel expressing the conservative or the Republican uh, platform or agenda in front of a, such a large group of people who are drastically bipartisan. You had uh, a Republican section, a lot of uh, 
so-called moderates and then a, a lot of Georgetown Democrats. Uh, but how did you feel going up into that in, into that environment, having to discuss foreign affairs and foreign policy, especially with the with everything that's going on now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I would say it was a very interesting environment. I think it was to somewhat degree a tiny bit hostile. Um, there were, there was a certain sect of people who were kind of jeering at certain times and didn't interrupt the flow of debate a little bit. But I felt like I had a pretty um, pretty good debate, pretty solid debate. I think we had a decent conversation. I think there was a little bit too much talking at each other. Um, when I started the debate, I, I say I spoke as calmly and contently as I could, maybe because I also have the reputation of speaking a little bit too fast, a little bit too, you know, rambunctiously. So I tried to start off, you know, slow and content. And I gave my first opening speech, and I thought it went well for the most part, but then my opponent immediately went for this very fast-paced, very aggressive, very antagonistic point of view. I had tried to, you know, keep things pretty mild up until that point. And after that happened, I I felt like I wasn't really given a choice um, as far as how I had to continue the, bite, the debate, and I knew I had to respond at that point. So I did pick up the tempo, and I thought my debate actually did improve from that point on. Um, after I got a little bit more into it. Although I wish that wasn't the way it had to be. I wish I didn't have to be more contestive against every issue. I wish I didn't sometimes like have to, like there was a point where it kind of got into back and forth interruptions. I wish that doesn't have to happen. But in the context of that scenario where you have, well, I think it was about 150 people watching and one, you know, a very large sect of people cheering on the other side, essentially, um, you know, I had to respond, I guess, just for the the sake of the sway of the room and how that was going to end up. And just one final follow-up is, did you expect that debate to mirror the 2020 presidential debates where there was a lot of interruptions and it wasn't as civil as I think the country wanted? Or did you think it was going to be a bit more antagonistic and the Democrats were going to go guns blazing? I, I was hoping it was going to be more like the vice presidential debate which we probably would remember a lot more but for the fly um that was kind of that that stole the show unfortunately because americans don't engage in political discussion i think enough um so that did kind of steal the show but that's what i was hoping for i didn't expect it to be too guns blazing not as much as it was at least but i was always pre prepared for it i did high school debate and that was almost always what happened. It didn't really matter what side you took. You kind of expected that fast-paced, confident response. And that is largely, especially because that kind of debate is competitive and you get scored, is that sounding confident often makes it, seems like, make it, makes it seem like you're winning, even if you aren't necessarily winning. So, yeah, I, I would have preferred it to be more like that vice presidential debate instead of that presidential debate where there was that constant interruption. And I don't feel like we got to that extent, like the moderator wasn't constantly asking us to stop. In fact, it was more the moderator asking the audience to stop interrupting us. Um, I know my fellow uh, conservative, John DiPieri, had an issue with that, especially since he was covering some of the social issues, which have been pretty contentious for Republicans over the past few months. So, I, yeah, I would have, I kind of expected a slightly less aggressive debate, but it was never out of my mind that it would be like that. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining this premiere episode of The Elephant in the Room, and I hope to have you again soon. All right. Thank you so much.
And now we have our amazing senior Dalton joining us. So you've worked for Senator Hawley in your home state of Missouri. Mm -hmm. And of course, he's making a lot of headlines now with his opposition to Kentaji Brown Jackson, mm -hmm. who President Biden appointed to the Supreme Court to fill Justice Breyer's seat. What was it like working in the office of such a young and upcoming Republican senator? Many people have floated him as a potential future presidential candidate, vice presidential candidate, and just leader. And what do you think he represents, especially back home in Missouri, and then for the conservative movement more broadly? Yeah, it was really exciting working for him. That's kind of really what initially got me into politics at all, as I wasn't super political. Um, but he actually went to my church uh, back home. And so we first kind of connected on uh, faith grounds, kind of sharing the, uh, the same faith and wanting to grow uh, in that way. And then he also just happened to be running for the attorney general of Missouri at the time and, uh, and needed some extra hands. You know, he was kind of, a, I mean, at the time he was in his 30s, which is like really early to run for an office like that uh, statewide. So he needed a lot of help. He didn't have a lot of established support. Uh, so any extra hands. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'll help out because I trust you, you know, as a man, someone that I uh, trust that shares my faith and you know, my values. And so uh, mostly almost kind of as a as a friend, I kind of jumped on the campaign. I, I knew some other people uh, on that. And then, of course, because of a roller coaster of events, he ended up running for Senate like a year and a half later, uh, which was crazy. So uh, getting to see behind the scenes of, of both of those races, it was exciting just because working for someone who you really believe in. It's not just because they have the power that, cause he wasn't in power at all. When I first like started helping him, it was because I truly believed in him. Um, and I think that's why, you know, things like term limits kind of have, you know, some, some good arguments because it's like when you bring new people in and, it, and it's not, you know, you're not supporting someone just because they're the one that's always been there and, you, and everyone knows their name. Uh, but that kind of forced change. And I think he really brought that to, to the table, you know, competing against other more established candidates and was like, no, I have a real vision and like a, you know, kind of, a role that I want to play in our national conversation. And so being able to jump on such a energetic young campaign like that was super exciting for me. So that's what, what got me into politics really. That's incredible to hear. And I've lived in Portugal for all my life and coming now to Georgetown, I worked on the Glenn Youngkin for governor campaign. Mm -hmm. And that really just made me even more interested and wanted to do more. So I definitely uh, get your feeling there. And Youngkin was somebody I look up to, especially bringing the education conversation mm -hmm. into the Republican Party and the conservative of movement and now bringing parents into the conversation that was very much lacking. Mm -hmm. Another question I had is where, how was it like to see that transformation in Missouri? Because a lot of people talk about how before uh, like President Trump came in, Missouri was always seen as a purple state going mm -hmm. to decide the elections. Mm -hmm. uh, but now it's seemingly a very Republican, a safe Republican stronghold. So how did that, how did you kind of see that play out in Missouri? Mm -hmm. And how do you think that will put Missouri on the map for being in Republican leadership positions? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a hopeful story, really, for me. It's, it's optimistic in terms of the way that I, I want to see, and I think a lot of us in the conservative movement today want to see it push toward being a more, um, you know, multiracial, working class, um, you know, labor-based uh, movement. And I think that's exactly what happened in Missouri. You had a, a, a huge, uh, you know, union population in Missouri. And the, the same time that Senator Hawley was elected, uh, to the Senate, we uh, our, our state shot down uh, um, an anti kind of union uh, statewide uh, you know ballot as well. So it's like you know an initiative uh, where you have overwhelming support, you know, sixty plus percent for a conservative Republican uh, candidate, and at the same time uh, a pro union, pro labor kind of uh, ballot initiative. And so uh, it was it was really interesting to see that happen. And I think that's simply been the the you know issue, the change because. 
for, you know, as you mentioned, for decades, Missouri was a bellwether. It was, you know, whoever we elected was going to win the, the presidential be just because we were always in that 50-50 kind of line, leaning one way or the other. And so uh, whatever way we went was kind of an indication of where the nation was. And that's not the case anymore. I mean, now, uh, because of Trump capitalizing on the working class vote and uh, turning all of those, you know, hardworking Americans into, uh, you know, conservatives and Republicans and actually for the first time being proud to, to be that um, and kind of getting away from that sort of more elite upper class uh, Republican identity. Uh, I mean, it just the numbers are just overwhelming in Missouri. It's just not possible anymore for, uh, you know, conservatives not to win. So hopefully that'll happen nationwide. And, you know, obviously the demographics of every state are a little bit different, but I think it's an optimistic story about what the Republican Party can be going forward. Definitely, I agree. And you talked about like the elites and, and how the Democratic Party are now becoming more elitist in their nature and focusing on California, New York. Mm -hmm. What is it like to contrast being a student here in Washington, D.C., a city that voted for Joe Biden by over 90 with over 90 percent of the vote? I think Trump only got five percent of the vote mm -hmm. here in D.C. compared to Missouri, where over 60 percent voted for Trump. Yeah, it's very different. And and I think the the thing that that holds me up about it is that I don't think uh, people on the left realize how little of conservative culture and, you know, traditions or whatever they, they understand or, or experience or even, even positions. You know, there's so many people here at Georgetown that are from similarly, you know, liberal, you know, 70, 80%, whatever towns all along the East coast and the Northeast and you know, whatever, some of them from California, and they just never experienced that. Whereas as conservatives, we've always experienced the liberal like side and arguments, maybe not locally around us, but in our culture, you know, in, in the news, in uh, media publications, in uh, shows. I mean, you see everything's happening with Disney right now. I mean, it's not like there's a shortage of like leftist kind of presentation in the cultural, uh, you know, sphere. Uh, but conservatives don't have that. So unless you're from one of those towns that's, you know, overwhelmingly conservative, like, you know, where I come from in Missouri, uh, then you never see that. So I think, uh, you know, every place has their biases and there's certainly echo chambers on both sides. That's 100 percent true. But what I think people on the left don't realize is that their echo chambers are a lot more powerful and a lot more nationally recognized than maybe conservatives are. And so when I came here, you know, I, I felt like I'd always... I always kind of knew at least the sort of liberal positions and arguments. And I think I meet a lot of people here that that just have never heard a conservative case for anything or and just have no idea of what a place like Missouri is like or so many other places. Whereas I've, I've always known. I mean, I've, I've visited California and Florida, that kind of stuff. Uh, I guess Florida now is pretty conservative. But, um, you know, so these these, uh, you know, these places, they identify or they have a lot bigger of an identity on the national stage. And so I think echo chambers can be more dangerous when you uh, when you don't, you know, have a way to. Uh, have that checked by anyone outside of your own, you know, so I think conservatives definitely have our own problems with with that and with being a little secluded. But, um, you know, at least we are always exposed to the other side to some degree. And I felt that was the case when I came to Georgetown. I, you know, I, I was I, I'd already been kind of exposed to some of those things. Yeah, I can definitely relate to a lot of that difference in exposure. Being mm -hmm. abroad, you only get like the mainstream American press that ever mm -hmm. translates to Europe. And so a lot of it was like CNN, MS, NBC, mm -hmm. uh, ABC, CBS. And so a lot of people there knew the, that the more liberal establishment, liberal perspective mm -hmm. on a lot of the American affairs. And they saw it as business as usual mm -hmm. because of this foreign policy a consensus that's been in Washington for decades now. Mm -hmm. You're starting to see that little cracks in those now. Mm -hmm. But so everybody had this shared view of America that the parties are the same and because <laughs> of this foreign policy approach that both parties have similarly taken yeah. and being there I found less of being more conservative but rather representing America as a whole mm. and being with the, the 2016 election is what really pushed me into having to consider all these issues and mm -hmm. hearing what foreigners thought of America and American issues and when I didn't lean the way that they thought I would or that <laughs> I was expected to lean 
it, it really opened the door that they really thought of things from the European perspective, like especially when Trump was talking about renegotiating trade deals with Europe. Mm-hmm. It was very much focused on, no, 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 with Obama and with Hillary Clinton, we're going to get a good deal that Europe was going to win the, the that trade Mm-hmm. Uh, relationship, whereas with Trump, you're going to get a more fair or more balanced trade agreement where Europe would have to uh, import more from the United States mm-hmm. or the U.S. would import less from Europe. And so they, I've had people say, they didn't know that where I lean politically, but I overheard a conversation when I was there for over Christmas break, and one gentleman said, oh yeah, if Trump, somebody like Trump ever wins again in the United States, who's more protectionist in trade, Europe's economy is going to tank, mm-hmm. especially now and that's been something that I've been crying in Europe for, for a long time is cut relationships and dependencies on Russia and China and have a strong relationship with the U.S. Mm-hmm. But how that played out, you know, coming to D.C. in the epicenter of American government was really interesting to have the differentiated viewpoint. But mm-hmm. where I want to ask in, in this question is how has the D.C. Republican compared to a more outside the Beltway Republican. How have you seen that happen? Because being here in, in Washington, you expect them to be more pro-Washington establishment, whereas outside the Beltway, it's more uh, more anti-establishment, more uh, mm-hmm. people-focused. Yeah, I think the main difference, and, and kind of a shame a little bit, is that I think D.C. Republicans care way too much what dc liberals think about them and they're just very they just can't, they care too much about what people think about them and like their highest goal isn't uh you know supporting what they're or you know pushing for what their supporters want um it's not you know representing the people it's not good policy it's not what they truly believe in none of those things are the kind of top ideals the top ideal is like you know saving face and presenting a like you know you know a, a good republican image to like to those on the left or whatever and i think it's just, I don't think the left operates that way in D.C. I think they don't care at all what Republicans think of them. I mean, they have no cares uh, about meeting in the middle. So I think that's not that's just not a way to represent people. It's not a way to represent the millions of people that voted for you, uh, you know, outside the Beltway, across this whole country. If you then come to D.C. and you're more concerned about what the people across the street think about you than uh, what the people that actually put you there think about you. So uh, I, I, that's the one thing I've noticed that's kind of a little bit of a tragedy is that I don't think uh, D.C. Republicans are quite as... Uh, apt to put people's feet to the fire and kind of stick to their guns, uh, you know, in a way that someone outside the Beltway might. And how do you think GUCR plays into that? Because we are in Washington, D.C., uh, mm-hmm. but of course we have students from all over the country, and a lot of our members tend to be either from the East Coast or uh, outside in a more conservative uh, heartland, mm-hmm. and how that might impact how GUCR operates and how that's mm-hmm. how we try to portray ourselves on campus? Is it just getting any chance to get the message out or is it having to look good in order to even be presentable? Yeah, it's it's tough a little bit because we have to operate within the kind of campus restrictions sometimes. Like that can be hard. Um, for the most part, I, I think it's pretty split. I think it's about, you know, half of GUCR is, um, you know, really committed to kind of giving their, you know, their hometowns, their home states, a represent, you know, representation at this national stage. And they're very keen on that. And, uh, you know, cause this, you know, the sad part is that, you know, we're all about diversity here at George. I mean, everyone's all about diversity. That's kind of the big talk of the day. Um, but if you, if you meet a lot of the people that come from these red states that are here, supposedly providing that kind of geographic diversity, they really all believe the same, you know, things like politically or whatever that the people in the, from the big cities on the East coast do. Um, and so, you know, that's, what's kind of shame is that, you know, everyone that's from 
you know, Texas, like, is a liberal from Austin, or everyone that's from Missouri is a liberal from St. Louis. And it's like, yeah, you're providing a little bit more diversity, but you're actually losing out on a lot of that. So I think uh, the amount of people that actually come from these unique places and are willing to stick up for what those people kind of believe in and want to represent, um, you know, their kind of people uh, in this city that has such little representation for those people is pretty minimal. So I think I think in GCR, it's about split, maybe. I'd say about half of the people that are kind of from these places, like, really stick to their guns and like really, you know, I try to just to a certain degree present arguments genuinely and like as people would, um, you know, from Montana, Missouri, you know, Mississippi, wherever. Um, and I think about half sort of cave into the kind of, you know, I, I want to fit in, you know, too, a little too much uh, with DC and kind of uh, rub shoulders and be, uh, you know, gain the influence that comes from being well liked by everyone. Um, and yeah, and they just cave a little too much without, uh, you know, wanting to truly represent kind of where they come from. Yeah, I think very well said. And uh, one thing that I was interested in is knowing that you're in the ROTC. Mm. So thank you for your service and, and putting the country, your country first. Is Does politics ever play a factor among the Hoya Battalion or is it more putting serving the country and putting the country mm-hmm. ahead of any individual? Uh, well, so the short answer is no, it can't. Because um, the Hatch Act, there's lots of restrictions that govern... Uh, you know, politics in the military that are very strict, extremely strict. I mean, your career will be ruined if uh, you, you, we can't even uh, advertise for, uh, uh, you know, like a town hall that our favorite candidate is having uh, on social media if we have our rank or our, you know, unit in our, you know, bio or something like that. So it's very strict. You can't support uh, any partisan candidate. And that's why even, you know, even this interview, I have to make it extremely clear that like, the the beliefs that that I have and that I hold represent only myself. They're only personal, not the U.S. military, not the uh, U.S. Army. Uh, because yeah, I've seen a lot of people get in trouble for that. So uh, it's it's you know it's too full. Because on on one hand, you can get in a lot of trouble, and it's uh, very strict uh, about not conflating the two. But on the other hand, as service members, you know, uh, sailors, soldiers, airmen, marines, like we don't check our First Amendment rights, you know, at the door as soon as you like you know commission or enlist. Uh, you still, you know, just because we're defending the First Amendment doesn't mean that we lose our right to it, you know. So uh, we do still maintain all of our First Amendment rights. Uh, and so we have the full opportunity to, to pursue all those things. However, that is only true if you make it extremely clear that it's severed from your uh, military affiliation. It's only a personal belief. So as long as you check that box and as long as you're very clear um, that it's only personal, then you know, we do maintain all of our, you know, political, you know, we can have all those political conversations. Um, but you can get in a lot of trouble if you uh, even even hint or even don't go far enough in clarifying that that it that it uh, that it isn't a you know military policy or a dod policy uh, it can get you in a lot of trouble so it's it's a weird tiptoe you know where you don't lose those rights but you have to be careful yeah yeah definitely i can imagine that's sometimes <laughs> it can be hard yeah. to have to uh bite your lips sometimes and mm-hmm. but i think it overall it would should i would think it's a good net positive for the military to want to stay out of what's going on in politics and yeah absolutely sure there isn't those divisions fighting on because we don't want a civil war yeah so absolutely that's i think one way of preventing that it's important and given your experience experience uh more than us being having some time at, on campus before covid and mm-hmm. that all put us remote how have you grown being in more conservative circles in a liberal campus for four years for all those that extended period of time Mm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this probably came through in my answers a, a decent amount already, but I think the biggest way I've changed is I've become a lot less, like, libertarian and, like, hands-off in terms of my... I just, you know, I think coming from a, a red state where, where everyone kind of generally agree, agreed with me, it's very easy to sort of fall into, you know, oh, we should just have a hands-off policy, whether that's on, you know, 
economic policy, whether it's on like kind of culture war fights and like that kind of stuff. And it was always just kind of a, you know, live and let live. But that, that's a, that's a convenience that you have when you live in a place where a lot of people agree with you. And, you know, so coming from Missouri, I was like, oh yeah, this is an easy solution. And then I came here and I realized just like the craziness of like the far left and some of the, you know, really aggressive um, policies of just shutting down speech and uh, just, you know, canceling people is, you know, kind of, you know, a, you know, a term that what, take that for what you will, but um, things like that, just being very, very aggressive against people that disagree with them. And, um, and I realized that, no, like we, if we truly believe in these values, uh, we can't just kind of sit back and let them be like destroyed. We have to actually have to kind of take initiative and take action. Do, do the, just basically do the exact same things that the left does in terms of pushing their agenda forward and not be so scared and hesitant to stand up for our beliefs and, uh, you know, not, not, not push for just kind of a hands-off kind of thing because the more that we do that, just the more that we lose, you know? And, and so it's a, it's a convenience that you, that you have uh, in a place where everyone agrees with you to be able to do that. But coming here over the last four years, I kind of realized like if conservatives want to ever have a say or, or continue to have a say, uh, to the degree that we even have um, in in our nation's you know m- movement forward, we have to learn to be able to fight and stand up for what we believe in, and just as the left does, be confident in what we what we believe and and stick to our guns and not just fold and promote a, a sort of libertarianism that um, just le- leads to us being taken advantage of. Really, yeah. One final question uh, before we wrap up is, what advice do you have for incoming? Uh, students into Georgetown, like, what would you say has been your highlight at Georgetown and in DC to kind of take the politics a little bit out of? Yeah, um, just enjoy your time here. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I came here and I was debating between a school back home in Missouri and coming here, and I decided to, to you know, pull the trigger and go, go all in and kind of take the advantage, you know, advantage of the unique opportunity, move a thousand miles away, leave my family, and you know, if you're coming in here, it means that you've made that decision too, and uh, so like get the most out of it. You know, don't, don't let it slip you by. Uh, you know, you're coming here for a reason. You're not, you're not settling for just the normal. And, um, and so, uh, I can speak as a senior, especially with COVID, but in general, just how quickly time flies and, uh, don't miss it. Take advantage of the opportunities, meet cool people. I mean, I, I hate the city. Like I want to get out as soon as possible. I'm never coming <laughs> back here, but while I've been here, I've met some really cool, really interesting people. And I just, you know, I like the rural life. I like, you know, <laughs> there's a million reasons like policy wise, I wouldn't want to live here. Um, but, if I, you know, I, I'm glad that I made the choice to try it and to come out here to see, you know, meet new people because it this city brings in such a range of brilliant people from different backgrounds, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, politics and different experiences uh, around the world, and uh, they 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 all come here because this is the capital of the greatest nation in the history of the world. So take advantage of that opportunity, and uh, you know, I, I'm not going to stick around for too long, but I uh, I've loved the you know people that I've met while I'm here, and, I, and I'm glad that I. Uh, take the opportunity to, to make those relationships happen. Well, thank you so much for your answers. I've learned a lot and for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on The Elephant in the Room in our premiere episode, part one of our premiere episode and having you on to keep up the great work and I know you'll, you'll represent us very well. Well, thanks for having me. Yep. And that concludes part one of the premiere of The Elephant in the Room podcast. I just want to make sure to everyone listening that all views expressed in this episode are the host's and guest's own and do not necessarily reflect the official stance of GUCR. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for part two that will be coming out after Easter break. Stay red and Hoya Saxa.